0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: You've tuned in to Sci Fi Fidelity, Episode 85 Lost in Space.
0: everyone, and welcome back to Sci-Fi Fidelity. It's Mike and Dave with you here once again with another show topic for January. And now, actually, both of our show topics in January were shows that premiered in December. We talked about The Witcher last week. That started, or dropped, on December 20th in its entirety on Netflix. Lost in Space is also a Netflix show that dropped in its entirety on Christmas Eve. They were definitely going for a Christmas theme, at least at the start of the series, and I think they did a good job with that. But, you know, hopefully some of you guys have checked out these shows at least a few episodes. in. we're going to talk about just the first couple of episodes as we usually do. And then we'll have a small spoiler zone for those of you who have seen the whole thing. But This was an interesting choice of release date, Dave, December 24th for Lost in Space.
1: Uh, Yeah, and you wonder why they would do that. Now, on the one hand, it's a Netflix show, so they don't necessarily expect everybody's going to binge the entire series in one night, but still... I guess maybe they feel like a lot of families are home. It's, you you know, it's family fair. I liken it to The Librarians, which was a show that didn't insult your intelligence, but you could watch it with the whole family, even young children. Now, some people might argue, and we'll talk about this in the discussion, that Lost in Space writers maybe are insulting our intelligence. But (laughs) I, I, I go back to what I've said many times. We need to judge this for what it is, not what you think it should be.
0: Exactly. Like uh, we talked about with the witcher last week that they left a lot for you to figure out for yourself. That's not the case with lost in space because they know kids are watching this show. And I think that was very much intentional. Winter break is happening for a lot of schools and maybe you can, you know, watch one a night in a situation like that. I also think maybe, maybe, December 24th might've been a small nod to the fact that this is the 24th colony group, but maybe that's just me reading into it. But uh, for those of you who uh, hopefully have seen season one, this is definitely going to be spoilery for season one, even in our initial discussion. So be careful about that. But if you need a refresher, we've got the Robinson family. And of course, this is a remake of the 1960s program, but it's quite a bit different. It's got its own identity. The family is part of a, the 24th colony group, as I said, people leaving a dying earth to start a new life on a planet circling Alpha Centauri. We've got John Robinson, who's a military man. He spent most of season one kind of reconciling with his family because he was away so much. We have Maureen Robinson, who is a brilliant engineer, appears to be unshakable. And her biggest secret really seems to be the fact that she got her son, Will, into the colony through some illicit means. And that does come up a little bit in season two and will Robinson, the youngest child has a connection to the robot that he met in season one. And they've definitely taken this concept of the robot from the 1960s show and made it quite different from the 1960s series. Dave, did you ever watch that one back then?
1: Well, I certainly did. And I like the dark robot. I mean, you knew I would. So, (laughs) uh, but I also like the way the robot is involved in Dr. Smith's arc. As well, so that we've got this almost competition going on for the robot's affection, certainly from, (laughs) from Will's standpoint, but, uh, yeah, so I like it a lot.
0: And of course that relationship has really evolved in season two, since he met the robot in season one, he has become much stronger and more assertive himself. He was kind of a frightened child who didn't do well under pressure, which is why he didn't initially pass his tests because the stress tests got him. Now he's doing a lot better. And in fact, the actor is a much taller now. So he's grown up quite a bit in the seven months that have passed. Judy, the eldest from a previous marriage, th- that's a twist on the family uh, dynamic. She's a doctor and wants to be recognized as an adult in season one, and certainly in season two as well. And then Penny kind of gets lost in the middle. She provides a bit of comic relief, but she also, I think, doesn't realize uh, her potential and what she does bring to the group, and she does build some confidence in season two.
1: And we also get some great scenes between her and her mother that address that idea.
0: Yeah, for sure, it's because she's she's pretty upfront with her misgivings and and Maureen is really great at reassuring her. Dr. Smith, I th- I'm happy to say, has experienced some improvements in season two. She was kind of annoyingly evil. And not so much her fault. It's just that the characters gave her way too many chances to do better when they should have just, I think you mentioned one time, why didn't they just airlock her? Like she airlocked that guy. Yeah, <laughs> You know? And then of course we've got Don West, who's kind of a Han Solo character along for the ride. He's a great character as well. And last we saw them in season one, they were on the Jupiter two attempting to get back to the colony ship, but a strange egg-like object that clearly had ties to the robot took over the spacecraft and took them to a planet that was designated by the robot as danger. So we have to wonder, okay, where are they and how's this going to pick up in season two? The robot himself was lost in that final battle with another of his kind trying to reclaim this egg-like object, which it turns out is stolen from the robot race by humanity. Because we learned that not only was the Christmas star, as it's called, which decimated Earth, not only was that not a meteor strike or anything like that, it was a crashed robot spacecraft, but also that engine that they pulled from the wreckage was the human's secret to interstellar travel that allowed them to escape their dying planet. So there's a little bit of exploitation going on here, and that certainly plays into the overall story arc with the robot that I think is going to unfold through not only season one and two, but beyond as well. I mean, it really starts to center around the robot a little bit, doesn't it?
1: Well, it does. And I think that's one of the criticisms that people have. And I don't agree with, I just accept it, that the constant use of science fiction tropes, the constant predictable outcomes to situations of stress, it's okay. Right, we we know Will's not gonna fall off the ship. We know <laughs> yeah. uh, these things are are going to resolve themselves. That's
0: okay. Yeah, that's the fun of the adventure because it's supposed to be in a family style adventure, such as you might have seen on you know, the Wonderful World of Disney on a Sunday night. If you, if you grew up in the eighties, like I did.
1: All right. You use the F word and that's what people have to remember <laughs> What this show is supposed to be fun.
0: That's what it's about. <laughs> exactly. Got to check your uh, intellect at the door sometimes with the believability of some of the scientific <laughs> explanations for things in this show. So the, we're talking about actually the first three episodes. I believe I said the first two episodes in the, in the intro, but yeah, we had to go in with three because what's interesting is that The first three episodes are about returning to the Resolute from this planet. And then the whole rest of the season takes place on the Resolute with all the other colony members. So here we thought we were going to have the family and Don West and Dr. Smith and the robot, just like we did in the 1960s series, hopping from planet to planet and getting into trouble along the way. But that's not the case. However, these first three episodes do have that flavor because the family's been stranded on a planet for seven months without enough power to take off. In fact, they've really just got enough uh, solar power, I think, that they collect as part of their daily routine to maintain life support. And that's it. And they've got a little greenhouse going with some crops and just trying to live day to day. Right.
1: Right. And, and, you know, that's a narrative device that I think they're going to have to continue to use as the show gets another season we we assume the seven month fast forward because you've got young kids as over half of your cast and they do this thing where they grow and get bigger (laughs) so I, I would certainly think at the end of season two which I haven't seen yet that you know however that ends when we come back for a season three an equally long or maybe even longer time period will elapse
0: yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't hate that <laughs> for sure. But one thing I'm happy about is that during these 7 months Dr. Smith has been locked up the yes. whole time. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> well, or has she? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She we do learn that she's taken a few field trips here and there, but this happy improvised Christmas scene obviously was contrived because of the release date. But I think it works really well because they have this collection of some bioluminescent moss that it turns out they're trying to basically decorate the tree with lights. (laughs) It's really kind of cute. And it introduces us to Penny's account of the Robinson adventures. And she's entitled her memoirs lost in space. And this comes into play throughout season two in a really great way that I feel helps Penny's character remain relevant in a family that has a bunch of geniuses in it, because you know, she's got her own personality and the story that she's told is really important to her. And it's really important that others around her acknowledge her view of what they've been going through.
1: Right. And, you know, we understand why she feels as she does being in this family of geniuses. But I always go back to that one scene and I know there were others when she's operating on her mother in season one outside and basically saves her life doesn't really know what she's doing, but dives right in there. It's got her hands in her, you know, mother's chest cavity and, and, you know, it's a pretty heroic thing she, she did there. And and that was not the only thing. So
0: yeah, well, she, I think what she does, and she did this certainly in, in season one, episode one or two, where she saves Judy's life under the ice. I think her talent is being able to make others around her, their best selves. She even does that with Smith a bit here in season two, which is kind of surprising. But Smith is up to no good. Of course, Uh, she is able to get out of her pen. She's just been biding her time. And because Maureen has been working on this engine egg thing to try and get them off the planet, hasn't been successful. You know, John's kind of settling in. He's thinking, you know, we've got a safe life. We don't have anything to worry about other than keeping things going sure the atmosphere is noxious (laughs) and we can't breathe it but you know we've got a little happy life going that's not filled with danger like it used to be but maureen wants to get off the planet so what does smith do she forces the issue by cutting the tent although we don't know that at first that it was her we just know that there was a breach in the tent kills all the crops and now what are they going to do rebuild from scratch no, let's go ahead and go with Maureen's plan. Well, of course, that's what Smith wanted all along, right?
1: Well, right. And John is still not on board with it. And, you know, I, I think when Maureen puts it in terms that, you know, our kids are never going to get married, they're never going to have families of their own. And we have to at least try. You understand where he's coming from. But when she puts it so succinctly, And really, so emotionally, there's really no other option whether Dr. Smith cuts the netting or not.
0: Exactly. She just basically fast forwarded the timeline a bit, I think. Right. And of course, you know, Maureen's always thinking outside the box. Some of the things she wants to do, quite dangerous. But if they pay off, they pay off big. And usually they do. And in this case, she wants to take the ship out on the ocean to get to this area of the sea where lightning strikes in a predictable and regular pattern every few days. I'm not exactly sure what the interval is. So why not use this lightning to recharge the Jupiter two so that they can take off and, and be on their way. And so this is one of the most Swiss family Robinson moments that they have again, completely not a credible concept that they come up with converting the Jupiter into a sailing vessel, but that's, it's fun. Like you said, that's the F word. Who cares that it's not realistic? Right.
1: Right. And who cares that none of us know how to sail? Oh, wait, Dr. Smith has her hand up. I can
0: sail. (laughs) Yeah. And they even have a flashback later on in episode three, I believe, where we see that she was on a houseboat for quite a bit of time. So they do give us some backstory that explains that a bit. Yeah,
1: because she does come through. She does know what she's doing.
0: Right. But it does create one of my least favorite moments of season two. Uh, and let me just go over the, the, the moments because there is a best moment of episode one where we see the robot drawing a sailboat on a cave wall in the final moments might, might even be called the epilogue to episode one where we don't know where the robot is. He's lost. Will wants to find him. And the fact that the robot drew a sailboat on the cave wall means he must somehow be sensing what the Robinsons are up to, even though he's not in the same location as them. So there's still that connection between Will and the robot that has to be acknowledged, even if some people might think it's just in Will's head. So I thought that was the best moment of the premiere. The worst, unfortunately was when Smith was sailing the vessel. They are successful for a little while. And she just shouts out into the uh, sky That's the power of teamwork. And I just wanted to vomit. (laughs) It's like those, the most cheesy, contrived line ever. But luckily, that's the only time that happens in the season. (laughs) But
1: you know why I love that line? Well, maybe love's a bit too strong. It's that she knows she's back in control. Yeah, that's true. And that... Even if they lock her up, which, of course, they can't. She's already – well, I shouldn't say they can't because they could maybe come up with another method and search her room a little better for uh, means of escape. But but she has proved her value or what her value can be. The problem is she's Dr. Smith. But the other thing that always occurs to me is the connection – with Maureen, because Maureen's not always forthcoming with the rest of her family either. Exactly. They do have similarities. And, you know, you mentioned the secret about how Will got on the expedition in the first place, even though he didn't really make the cut. Uh, you know, there's, st- there's a lot there. Now, granted, she's not evil <laughs> the way Dr. Smith is, but
0: still. Well, I guess what bothers me a little bit about Smith's evil is that she is portrayed as someone who is always thinking two, three steps ahead, like a chess player. But the problem is the things that she comes up with, she couldn't possibly know that it's going to come in handy for her. And in this case, it's the fact that after the kelp that almost kills Don from respiratory arrest is kind of taken off their ship. She keeps a little bit for herself. She keeps it inside her lost in space memoir that she got from Penny. And (laughs) thinks, oh, this will come in handy someday. And of course it does. So it's just like, how does she know that that's going to actually be? Sometimes I feel like her her plans are a little bit too prescient, but they do do a good job of making her less one-dimensional. She does have a redemption arc in the season that she maybe is believable in that sense. Maybe you still have some doubt about that by the end of season two, who knows? But they do make it to this strange valley of pylons in the middle of the ocean, which attracts the lightning it seems to be a structure that's been built by the robot race. They see some glyphs that are very similar to what they have seen on the robot and his ship in season one. This seems to be the central mystery for the season regarding the robots. It it almost gives me the impression that this system that the egg engine thing took them to between seasons one and two might be the home system of the robots. Because we later see more evidence along those lines that these pylon rings have something to do with the robot existence, as it were.
1: Well, and I also liked it. I think it was Maureen at least had the common sense to take some photographs of you know, at least some of the glyphs. I
0: think she probably could have shot a few more. But I think even Penny says at that point they're trying to survive and they have very limited time before they get struck by lightning. Who cares about the glyphs? Let's worry about getting out of here. But uh, after some creative MacGyvering as usual, they do harness the lightning and get back into space and find that the Resolute has somehow followed them to the other end of the wormhole, but they go into it and they find that it's empty. Now I feel like we, as the audience learn well before they do that, I don't think you're going to find anybody. I think this place has been abandoned. It takes them a little bit longer than perhaps it should to figure that out. But Smith does lose her handcuffs. You know, they don't put her back in her pen. They just handcuff her. Uh, I'm glad at least Maureen did that much, but of course she picks them quite easily and uses the opportunity to go around the Resolute. She shuts down all of the bulkheads so that she, in essence, isolates different members of the Robinson family so that she can go around and fake records, get the RFID chip or whatever it is out of the real Dr. Smith's forearm from the morgue and basically make it so that she really is Dr. Smith in all forms that are meaningful, which is the computer data, including erasing evidence of her interrogation back in season one. So in essence, she's able to operate with impunity for the rest of season two. And I appreciate that they did this because they had painted themselves into a corner they couldn't allow Dr. Smith to keep walking around and yet they still needed her as a character. So what do they do? They just make it so that Smith is helpful for a little bit and then erases any evidence that she was ever complicit in any crime. So thought that was a a bit of genius on the writer's part.
1: Yeah, but I still don't like it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. She's not perfect. She still is a flawed character that they're trying to retcon it a bit so that we actually have some sympathy for her. But, Even though she's no longer the sociopath she was in season one, uh, she's still morally questionable and and quite a a con woman as well. And uh, a better character, not the best character, but a better character than she was in season one. And of course we do have a little bit of payoff about the fact that a second alien robot who they refer to as SAR, which is an acronym for second alien robot, (laughs) took the Resolute's engine which is what the original robot was trying to do. If you recall at the beginning of season one, when it attacked the resolute and brought the resolute here before it did so. So in searching for what happened to the resolute, they trap a deformed robot that they're not sure what he's all about, it's not their robot, but they're not sure it's the second alien robot is either. Although I think at that time they think it is. And just then the evacuated team arrives to reclaim the ship. Uh, And they get a little bit of hints about what that's all about from a young girl who they find hiding inside the walls, who I guess she was left behind. So not exactly the jump from planet to planet adventure that I was hoping for, because now we've got the Robinson family and all the rest of the colonists, just like we did in season one. And in fact, a lot of the adventures seem like a replay of season one except in space instead of on, on the planet. But then there's also a lot of crises that happen on a new planet as well. Uh, not the one that they were trapped on, but a different one there in the system. So kind of a rehash of what made season one so good, but perhaps they need to branch out some more. And I think what we can say as we get ready to dive into the spoiler zone is that by the end of season two, they definitely have set things up such that season three will definitely be a different kind of story from what we saw in season one and two. So uh, the only thing I can say about season two before we dive into the spoiler zone is that I liked it. I think it was a bit too repetitive of season one in its tone and didn't have enough new to say it fixed the Dr. Smith problem halfway. I was pleased by that, but I definitely think the biggest success is the setup that it created for season three, which I'm predicting will be the best yet.
1: Yeah. And wonder whether it's going to follow what appears to be the new Netflix model is that original Netflix series. You get three seasons and the sayonara.
0: (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised, actually, although I think it's been getting quite a bit of attention. The amount of publicity they did for this show. And and of course, Den of Geek was part of that. We produced a Lost in Space magazine. It was sponsored by Netflix so we had a uh, sponsorship deal with them for this show. So we did tons of coverage. And I think sometimes that speaks to whether or not it's getting the attention they want and that maybe they were trying to drum up some business for it. But I could be wrong about that. I think it has to have some pretty wide appeal. And I've certainly spoken to a few coworkers of mine who have enjoyed it with their family. So I'm thinking that season three is pretty much a lock.
1: All right, well, let's go over to the spoiler zone. What do you think?
0: Yep, let's hit that button. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: You are now entering the spoiler zone.
0: All right. And of course, there's lots we could say about the different ins and outs of each episode. We're not going to go into that level of detail, but I do want to bring up two plot lines that came up in the second half of the season. The first is the mutiny. Now, of course, a mutiny orchestrated by Maureen Robinson and the Robinson family has a certain amount of fun irony to it. Because it seems like they're the good guys, and yet they're actually fighting against their own people in order to save lives, certainly. But it does feel kind of a, a fun twist on our expectations. Because, of course, when some corrupted water from another planet, the planet that the colonists were laid up on there for, for the past seven months, it limits the survivability of all of the colonists. There's just not enough water to keep everyone alive. So the Resolute plans to leave some of their members behind without telling them. So, of course, Maureen is unwilling to accept that. They've got some friends from their original uh, season one that are still down there. And so she organizes a team to make a daring attempt to use the ammonium gas from a nearby gas giant planet to purify the water quickly. And again, scientifically, that's complete nonsense, but... It makes enough sense in the context of their plan that it seems kind of fun, and of course they get to fly through the uh, stormy upper atmosphere of a gas giant. And what sci-fi fan wouldn't lap that up?
1: <laughs> yeah, you wonder if they watched any of the uh, footage from I forget what the probe was that was actually exploring Jupiter in real life. But
0: yeah, it's not quite the uh, the magnificent vistas that we see here, and of course we even see uh, like a some kind of jellyfish like creature floating around in the atmosphere, which I thought was interesting since since they don't really do anything with that other than say, Ooh, isn't that cool? (laughs) Which is kind of fun, but they have this group of people kind of like what Victor was like in season one. He was the leader of that bunch that was on the planet last year. And yet he was kind of, annoying and not a a villain, but he kind of foiled their plans a lot of times. Same thing here goes with Hastings, who's kind of a no-nonsense officer. He conspires to not only leave the colonists for dead, but even to leave Maureen and John for dead and Don West and some of the mechanics for dead. So he is not necessarily the best guy in the world. He speaks about having the best interests at heart of the survival ability of some part of their colony and is willing to sacrifice others. But he is kind of set up as the villain in that sense. And he also, it it's kind of hinted at that he was instrumental in Maureen's shenanigans for getting Will into the colony. So I think that's a, a secret that carries forward from season one that we actually don't get a full answer to what exactly she agreed to here in season two either.
1: Yeah. And also what Will's reaction is going to be to you know, that news. I mean, he thinks he did it on his own.
0: Right. And that comes into play as well, of course, in the later part of the season. But, you know, the mutiny allows them to kind of sneak behind the walls, thanks to Samantha, because Samantha knows all the ins and outs from her seven months alone on the ship. And it allows Smith to use her manipulative powers for good. And you're, of course, spending the whole time wondering, but is she really using them for good? (laughs) But it allows for them to, you know, reverse our expectations several times, not only because of the Robinses are doing questionable activities, but that Smith is doing good activities. So it, it's really kind of fun that way. And they uh, uncover the fact that humanity has, we already knew they were exploiting the robot technology, but it turns out the resolute inner circle, as it were, has really been severely abusing this robot who comes to be known as Scarecrow. And his engine, their original engine, I guess Scarecrow was the original robot that crashed into Earth as part of the Christmas star event. And they've really been kind of exploiting him. And there's this great analogy that Will has. He, did, he doesn't know he's doing an analogy, but he talks to his robot about having a bit in a horse's mouth and, oh, it doesn't hurt him. He, it just helps us guide him and, and, but basically they're using the horse for transportation and it's the same thing they're doing with Scarecrow. They're using him and his engine for transportation and it's appears to be killing him. And one of the higher ups, Ben Adler, who turns out to be an idealist. He actually does some things that are also kind of in that sacrificial vein, but comes around to the Robinson point of view. He actually was an idealist like Will thinking he could connect with this robot but he's grown cynical over the years because of their lack of success and lack of being able to control them. And because they keep attacking them, you know, it's like, how much are they really under our control? So that's the one scene the the mutiny is just a really interesting plot line. But of course there's the final battle, which leaves us with a lot of questions as the robots come up from their planets to take back their engine, but also kind of uh, seems like seeking revenge for the treatment of scarecrow and they want to take out the resolute once and for all. And it's clear throughout the season that will no longer controls his robot. They've both grown. It's not just will who's grown. The robot has grown and learned, and he's willing to say no to will when he gives him instructions, because it might not be in the best interest of him or his kind. And since robot himself was kept prisoner by the second alien robot, these past few months on the planet in seeking to help Scarecrow, which is the robot's idea, not Will's, not Ben Adler's, but the robot himself. They take Scarecrow to the planetary ring that has all the lightning bolts to heal him, but they have to take him to a very specific glyph to do it. So that's where I get that idea that maybe these rings are where the robots live. And when they take Scarecrow back, it awakens the entire robot race. So it begs the question, did they really need to do that? Because now they've got a whole killer army after them. And that sets up the whole disaster at the end of the season. So they seem to come for Will though, as much as they do for that other engine. So I'm wondering if the connection that Will thinks he has and uh, does not succeed in exploiting most of the season is something more than, than we at first think. I think even, penny or judy says to will something like you made a connection with the robot but you also made a connection with scarecrow because scarecrow actually fights on the human side in the end as they evacuate the children so i think will is still going to be that instrumental robot ambassador as it were <laughs> which is a great role for him so you're saying he's basically john connor and lost in space not <laughs> exactly. not, not he's not going to go back in time but Uh, Well, I mean, considering that all of it ends up with the children evacuating from the Resolute because all their parents think that, well, we're going to have to go down with the ship, but let's at least give our kids a chance to make it to Alpha Centauri. So Judy has taken the Jupiter eight. She's going to lead them as the sole 20 year old, I believe is how old she is. All the rest of them are 18 or younger. She's following a signal that the robot has tracked down, which is a human made signal. So they assume it must take them to Alpha Centauri, but they are surprised as we are that they come out in a completely different system. It's the Fortuna floating around a ruined planet. And the Fortuna we had learned earlier in the season is the ship that was captained by Judy's biological father, which we kind of learned a little bit about through flashbacks and just bit by bit. It really pays off well in this finale because now we wonder what happened to her father, what happened to the Fortuna, what was different about the Fortuna that helped the Resolute succeed where it couldn't. So there's a lot of backstory to this colony project that the Fortuna may have started back 30 years ago, well before the main evacuations of the planet, but, but after the Christmas star event. So we've got the kids on the other side of a wormhole, We've got Maureen and John who barely escaped death because Don rescued them there at the last minute, but now they have to figure out what to do in their Jupiter because they've of course now destroyed the resolute in order to stop the robots. So they have no idea where the kids went, where the kids went. They assume they went to Alpha Centauri, but of course they didn't. And of course, Smith appeared to sacrifice herself and there was this big moment, of course, robot, supposedly got her to get off of the Jupiter eight, which she was going to steal right out in front of the kids to survive herself. The robot supposedly mentioned the word family, which caused her to have second thoughts. She sacrificed herself, but then her scarf and that little blue ball that she picked up off the ground as she passed by the kids were found inside that crate on the Jupiter eight. So is she a stowaway now? on the kid's ship. Is she now going to be a second adult along with Judy, along with all these teenagers and young children? Because clearly she escaped somehow. I have no idea how she would have done it. But the fact that this scarf is inside the crate, which is the same kind of crate that they used to escape disaster earlier in the season means she must have used that same kind of strategy, but it's mind boggling to think that she could have survived that battle with the robots. So Smith is still in play. All of the parents and adults are still in play and the kids are off on their own as we head into season three and that really is an exciting setup even if the rest of it seemed a bit like a rehash of season one.
1: Yeah, but we got to wait a year.
0: Yeah, that's true. Hopefully not as long as we did between season one and two but uh, we'll see what happens in that score. Hopefully Netflix is a little bit quicker to renew this series. I know uh, just before we, went on to record this podcast. I saw the news that Raising Dion was renewed for a season two, and that was long overdue. I was really getting worried about that one. As you may have heard back in our discussion of, we watched more than two, our discussion topic for December. So I'm hoping that Lost in Space gets a little bit quicker response from the network (laughs) as to whether or not it's going to continue. All right, Dave, but we've got a discussion topic coming up next in January. What's the topic that the listeners can get involved in?
1: Well, we are going to talk about music and specifically the best opening theme music for genre television series. And as you and I were talking off air, this might be our most challenging topic (laughs) to date to narrow it to only six.
0: Yeah, there's two challenges with this one. One is to pick the best one because I've got a ton that I really love. But also, you know, we have to be able to discuss it. So, it's got to be, it's not just a case of saying, I really like the theme music to this show uh, because it's cool. <laughs> you know, you have to be able to describe why you like it. And so, we're going to get the listeners' involvement in this as well. I think we're going to have a very lively discussion, a lot of variety of answers to the question, What's your favorite opening theme music in a sci fi, fantasy, supernatural, horror show, any of those ones that we talk about on the podcast? So, buckle up because this is definitely going to be another, yet another discussion topic that's off the beaten path. So um, I have high hopes for it. But that's next week on the podcast. That's going to be it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity.
1: In the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you access it. Be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics via social media or in an email that goes to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com.
0: Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.